There should be a, an outline in your bulletin. You can follow the message there, or there are full printed messages at both exits and online, and you can access them there. Um, the church uh, Wi-Fi password's in the bulletin if you want to access it on a, a phone or electronic device. And all of the messages for the past uh, 24 plus years are on the church website as well. So you can um, access them there, either in print or audio messages. I hope you're on the church website and have registered your profile there and uh, are exploring around on that and getting familiar with it. We want it to be a communication tool for our church. I'm going to slow down as we work through some of these verses now in chapter 5 because... Um, they're very important for us as a church, and this morning want to look at some verses that deal with responsibilities in the local church. 1 Thessalonians 5, verses 12 and 13, where Paul says, But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction, and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Live in peace with one another. <clears throat> you know, every one of us wants healthy relationships, but I think sometimes we assume that those relationships just sort of blossom spontaneously, and when they happen, we're happy, and when they don't happen, we sometimes shrug our shoulders and walk away from it and think, well, there's not much we can do. But the truth is, healthy relationships always require responsibility on our part. They don't just happen. Uh, all parties involved need to understand and then work at fulfilling their they're mutual responsibilities in order for relationships to be good. And that's true whether we're talking about our marriages, our families, or the church. Healthy churches don't just, whoa, look at that, it happened. Healthy churches, wherever you see them, are healthy because the members are working at it. It's not a spontaneous or effortless process. And so Paul is concluding this letter, and remember it was written to a young church, probably less than a year old. These people had come out of raw pagan backgrounds, and now suddenly they are a church. They had no models of what that meant, how to relate one to another or anything. And he's going to give them some practical counsel about the local church. John Stott and his uh, commentary calls this final section Christian community or how to be a gospel church. In verses 12 through 15, we see that relationships require responsibility. And in the verses we're going to look at today, especially, we see the church's relationship toward its leaders, to know them, to esteem them highly in love, and uh, to um, live in peace with one another. And then also embedded in these verses are the leader's responsibilities toward the church, namely to work hard in the ministry, 
have charge over the church and to admonish the church. And then what we'll look at next, actually the next two weeks, next week I want to focus on the phrase admonish the unruly and what that means. And then the rest of verses um, 14 and 15. Um, In those we see the church's responsibilities or um, ministry one to another. And that is to minister sensitively to one another and to uh, live lovingly with one another. And then the main point of the whole section from verse 12 down through verse 24 Uh, Greg Beale puts it this way, is that God will sanctify and inspire peace in his people that they may be blameless at Christ's coming. And we've seen that theme of the coming of Christ uh, in chapters 4 and 5. Now in our text for today, Paul is saying that the local church and its leaders have these mutual responsibilities in the Lord. And first, I want to look at the responsibilities uh, that the church members have, and then we'll look at the responsibilities of church leaders. The church is responsible to know its leaders, to esteem them very highly in love, and then thirdly, to live at peace with one another. Now, before we look at those in more detail, I want to point out the need that we have as an American church for what I would call a paradigm shift, a major change in how we look at church. Um, In the American church, I think, and I'm generalizing here, but I think it's valid, we often view church as a business or a service organization that exists to provide benefits for those who attend it for its members, or to put it crassly, for its consumers. And so there's a consumer mindset. And the consumers, they shop around for a church that's going to provide the benefits that they want in a church. And if they think they find one, then they attend uh, the best one and uh, perhaps support it with their offerings and that sort of thing. But then if that church later fails to Uh, deliver the goods, so to speak. Well, time to shop around again, and they take their business elsewhere. And often churches cater to this consumer thing by marketing the church, trying to sell the church. Uh, Many, many years ago, decades ago, I wrote an article called The Best Show in Town. And the church is trying to compete with others and provide the best show for people to come and go, wow, what a great time that was, and then they go home. Uh, can't forget, several years ago, I was up at Flag Medical visiting someone in this congregation, maybe whoever it was can remind me if you're still here, but um, there was somebody else visiting at the same time at the hospital bed, and this lady introduced herself to me and said, hello, I'm the pastor of marketing at, and she named another church in town. And I was taken aback. I confess I had never conceived that there was such a job as the pastor of marketing. I'd missed that in my New Testament. I just didn't see it there. But that's the way that the church today operates. We market the church 
And there are books on that, how you can grow your church through advertising and marketing and applying business techniques to the church and all of that sort of stuff. In the New Testament, however, the church is not a business that is competing in the religion business, Uh, you know, in the marketplace of religion to give the best benefits to the spiritual consumers, but rather the church is a living organism composed of all who have put their trust in Jesus Christ. It's called the body of Christ, the body of Christ. And the Holy Spirit has baptized every believer into this one body of Christ where he is the head and we are the living members. And on our physical bodies, the key thing is life. Now, granted, bodies are organized. I mean, you know, it's all put together in a very organized fashion. And so local churches certainly need organization. They need administration and that sort of management. I'm not denying that. But the key thing about a body is it's alive. And it's responsive to the head. If it's not, there's a major problem. And so the body of Christ is that church members have received new life in the Spirit. Every single member, uh, the New Testament teaches, has received a spiritual gift to use for the building up of the body in love. And when every member is functioning properly, then that body of Christ grows and, of course, brings glory to the head. Uh, Another analogy in the New Testament is that the church is the family of God or the household of God, and it's being built together into a temple that is a dwelling place of God in the Spirit. And uh, Paul in Ephesians 2 develops that picture. He's writing here at this point in the letter to Gentiles. He says, they formerly were alienated from God's people, cut off from the covenants of promise and so on, But now in the church, he's arguing they're on equal standing with Jewish believers. And he concludes that chapter, Ephesians 2, 19 to 22, by saying, So then, you, you Gentiles, are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household. There's that picture having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fitted uh, together is growing into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So as we think about the church in these next several weeks, we need to get rid of this idea that the American church Uh, seems to have adopted, that we're some sort of a business or service organization, and the goal is to uh, get as many uh, consumers as you can in the door and give them the best show in town, and then they all go home. Rather, we are to be built together in our relationships with one another, in uh, our relationship with Jesus Christ. Now, given all of that, Paul here lays out three responsibilities for a local church. And obviously, these are not comprehensive. I think he is hitting on three needs 
that Timothy had reported to him existed in the uh, young church in Thessalonica. But these are important needs. First of all, Paul says the church is responsible to know its leaders. That's the literal translation. Uh, Depending on what translation you have, the New American Standard reads, appreciate. Uh, The NIV, the ESV, say respect. Uh, The New King James has recognize. And the uh, Holman Christian Standard Bible has give recognition to. Probably what Paul means is that they were to recognize certain men. They knew who they were as designated leaders, legitimate leaders in the church, and give them due respect. And so all of those translations are are probably on the mark. Uh, Dr. John Walvert, in his commentary on 1 Thessalonians, explains that this church, having been in, in existence just a few months, and so every member in the church was a new convert. That would be quite an experience, wouldn't it? Uh, there were no old-timers. They're all brand new in the body, and um, they had no background. Uh, none had any seminary training, of course. Seminaries didn't exist, or Bible college training, or anything like that. And uh, it may be, we don't know for sure, but perhaps Timothy had appointed some new leaders when he was there. Uh, on his short visit. And it could well be, and again, we're speculating here, but reading between the lines, it may be that some of the believers were thinking, hey, how come he's a leader? You know, I mean, we both became Christians same time. He's no older in the Lord than I am. And, uh, you know, how come he's setting himself over me? And that kind of tension may have existed in the church. Um, so Paul is urging the church, recognize and show respect to those who were the appointed leaders whom God had raised up. Now, we don't know yet whether they had the title elders or overseers. Those came to be the official title of leaders in the church. Paul does explain that they have charge over you in the Lord. In the New Testament... There are three terms that are used somewhat interchangeably but with different nuance of meaning for church leaders. One is elders, another is overseers, and the third, of course, is pastors, which means shepherds. Uh, Elder is reflecting the spiritual maturity necessary to be a leader in a local church. Uh, Overseer focuses more on the nature of the work that they are to uh, superintend or govern, um, guide, uh, administrate, manage, whatever you want to call it, the local church. And then pastor looks at the shepherding aspect of the ministry as uh, the pastor is shepherd, the, sh- the um, church is God's flock. When we read in the book of Acts, on Paul's first missionary journey, it says that he revisited the new churches he had founded and appointed elders over those local congregations. Uh, Later, uh, he wrote the book of Philippians, and he addresses that letter to the saints, and then he singles out the overseers and the deacons, those two offices. 
And uh, deacons, as I understand it, may be either male or female. There are examples, I think, of that in the New Testament. But their job is to assist the elders in practical matters. And I have a whole message on the website about the qualification and uh, job of deacons. But the qualifications for elders and deacons are pretty similar, except that elders are supposed to be able to teach God's word. That would distinguish them. But all the other qualifications in 1 Timothy 3, uh, that gives both elders and deacons, and Titus 1 gives elders, are spiritual or, or maturity uh, qualifications, godly character. In the New Testament also, every time the office of elder is mentioned, there is a plurality of elders over a local church. Never a one-man show, never just one elder over a church. For example, in Acts 20.17, it says that Paul called to himself the elders, plural, of the church in Ephesus. So there were several. Titus chapter 1 and verse 5, Paul had left Titus on Crete, and he said he left them there to appoint elders, plural, in every city. And in that day, there was one church in a city. And so plurality again. Now, it may be that the one church met in a number of house churches, and perhaps there was an elder over each house church, but the church had a plurality of elders over it. Um, there's only one time in the New Testament where you kind of have a one-man show in a local church, and it is negative. Uh, That is in 3 John, where John calls attention to this man named Diotrephes, whom Paul says he loves to be first among them. And John says, when I get there, I'm going to deal with this guy, you know, and uh, discipline him. Now, Granted, in the New Testament, you may have a situation where one man is uh, a leader of the elders. James seems to have been that in Jerusalem. And, of course, among the apostles, Peter was sort of first among equals there. Uh, But at the same time, none of them were autocratic or were over everyone else. They all worked together. And there is wisdom in a plurality of counselors, a multiple counseling situation. And also, a plurality of elders provides checks and balances because we're all fallible. None of us exactly uh, knows what should be done in every situation. Um, The pastor, by the way, does not run the local church. Sometimes people assume that of me. I don't run this church. I am an elder among elders, and together we seek the mind of the Lord. What is God wanting for this church according to his word? And um, thankfully, we have people in many areas, and some of those areas, I don't know what's going on. I'm not over that area. I trust the other elder who is to oversee that area. And so we divide up the work among us, and that's how we work. Many, many years ago, we had a pioneer girls program in our church in California, and the national, one of the national leaders called up to, wanted to talk to me, and Marla could not persuade this woman 
that I had no clue how the Pioneer Girls ministry was going because I wasn't over that and I didn't deal with that. And that was just foreign to her because in every church, the pastor runs the church. Well, I don't. I am an elder in this church and together we seek the mind of the Lord together. Um, So whether the nuance is that you should know or appreciate or respect or recognize your church leaders, the question remains, well, how do you do that? How do you apply that? May I suggest, get to know your leaders. Uh, Get to know who they are. Uh, Invite them over for dinner or take an elder out for coffee and pick his brain, find out how he met the Lord, uh, his experience in the Lord, what's helped him to grow in the Lord, what's his vision for the local church, just all of that sort of thing. And and also, how can I help serve you in this church? Because again, the elders don't do it single-handedly. They simply oversee the ministries that the body of Christ is carrying out. The second responsibility, Paul says, is that the church is responsible to esteem its leaders very highly in love, and that's in verse 13. Esteem them very highly in love because of their work. The word that is translated esteem means to think or consider, and the adverb very highly is is a, a superlative kind of adverb. It's the one that's used in Ephesians 3.20 where Paul says God is able to do far more abundantly beyond what we can ask or think. He's just piling up the, the um, phrases there. And so rather than, as we are prone to do with our political leaders, rather than griping about your church leaders, Paul is saying something very opposite, and that is hold them in the highest regard uh, because in love because of their work, as the NIV puts it. What is their work? Their work is overseeing, guarding, shepherding uh, those whom Christ has bought with his own blood. And I can assure you, it is hard work. And always you have as an elder a sense of, I could do more, and I'm falling short. You just can't quite get that work under control. Now, there is one sense in which Uh, every member of Christ's body is responsible to help shepherd the other members of the body. It is impossible for a small number of elders adequately to shepherd a larger flock as is in this church. And the fact is, you know certain people in this church better than any elder knows those people. And if you see that they're kind of drifting from the Lord, or you're sensing they're struggling you're on. You need to go to that person and try and help them out and, uh, you know, try and get them back on track. And if you can't, after you've tried a little bit, then call in one of the elders and say, man, I'm struggling with this. Can you help? And together we can help shepherd God's flock much better than if you let the elders do the job and you figure, oh, well, I'm not an elder. That's not my job. We're all in this together. When Paul says esteeming an elder very highly in love, he doesn't mean you should never bring concerns or criticisms that you may have about things you see in the church. Uh, Often, I'm the last one to hear about a problem. Uh, 
And I think, why didn't I hear about this months ago? You can't solve problems you don't know about. And so there's a legitimate place and time to bring problems to the elders. But may I say this? There's a right and a wrong way to bring problems to leaders. Uh, If I may use an analogy, when my children were young, I wanted them to be free to come to me with complaints or problems, or maybe I had failed them in some way. I didn't want them to be threatened that they couldn't talk to me about the problem. But there was a right and wrong way to talk to dad about a problem. And if they came, you know, in my face defiantly, even if I was in the wrong, I would tell them, listen, you don't talk to your father like that. They needed to respect my authority as their father. And I would say, "Uh, I'd be glad to listen, but you need to talk to me in a nice way. And then we can talk. And it's, it's similar in the local church, again, you know, that Paul says here that God has put these elders in charge over you in the Lord, and you're to esteem them very highly in love. And so with that attitude, sure, come and talk to us. And we'd be glad to try and deal with it. Some things are problems we can deal with. Some things are facts of life, and we just have to go, yeah, that is a an issue, but we can't do much about it, but let's pray together about it, that sort of thing. But um, also be ready. If you bring a problem to an elder, he may say, you're the solution to the problem and direct you to get involved. So don't come and dump it on an elder. Come and expect you may get enlisted as part of the solution to this problem. Another thing God forbid, but if an elder should mistreat you or uh, deal with you in a wrong way or if you see something in an elder's conduct or in his teaching that's out of line with Scripture, then you need to go to him privately and talk to him about that matter. Matthew chapter 18 talks about this. If he doesn't listen to you, then you take one other person and go to him. And it works its way up, up the chain that way. Um, but the point I'm making is regarding a leader very highly in, in love because of his work doesn't mean he's got a free pass from correction if he's wrong. There are churches where they say, you don't touch the Lord's anointed and the pastor is the Lord's anointed. And I've heard of horrific things going on, pastors involved in immorality and that sort of thing, and they aren't called on the carpet and they never repent and they stay in office, that's wrong. They need to be dealt with and there needs to be repentance and, uh, and correction in the body. Another reason I think Paul gives this command that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work is that their work sometimes involves coming alongside you and saying, brother, sister, you need to grow in the Lord in this area. In other words, Uh, admonishing, and that's in the text here, admonishing you. And that's when it's hard to esteem them very highly in love, isn't it? Because nobody likes to be admonished. But that's part of how we grow. I mean, every parent knows that. You have to correct your children. You do it in love, but you want them to grow up. And so if they're out of line, you come alongside in love and say, no, no, you don't live that way. Here's how we live. And you help them. 
And, and so don't think, oh, what right does he have to correct me? Well, the right he has, or it's a responsibility, is God charges him to do that. And so we have to show them respect, and we have to esteem them highly in love because of their work. The third thing Paul mentions is that the church is responsible to live in peace with one another. That's at the end of verse 13. If you stir up dissension in the church, or if you get into an interpersonal conflict with someone else in the church, you make an elder's job more difficult. It's, it's just difficult to deal with those kind of situations. Now, as I said, if there is a legitimate problem, don't take it to another member of the church unless they're the problem and you're trying to help them. Um, bring it to the elders. Otherwise, if you just go gossiping around the church with, you know, what's going wrong, blah, 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 the elders are out of the loop and you're spreading dissension. And we need peace in the body. And so we, we need to deal with issues. If there's false doctrine or if there's sin in the camp, certainly we need to know about it as elders and try to correct that and deal with it. Uh, but all too often, churches divide over petty things. I, I read about a church once that divided because the pastor decided to move the announcements from the middle of the service to the start of the service. And they formed camps and divided. Can you imagine? Uh, churches divide over music styles. Oh, the worship leader used drums this morning. I'm out of here. That kind of thing. Um, we need to talk about issues as a church. And so many issues are just not major things. In uh, Colossians 3.15, a verse that's usually cited out of context, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule and that word rule means act as the deciding umpire in your hearts to which indeed you were called in one body and be thankful. Paul isn't there telling you how to know the will of God, that you have a peace in your heart. What he's saying is do those things in the one body of Christ that make for peace. That should be your deciding factor. That's going to lead to dissension. That's going to lead for peace. I'll do that. And uh, then you make our job as elders more uh, easy. Now, Paul is primarily in verses 12 and 13 addressing the church members, but embedded in these verses are some responsibilities that elders have toward the congregation. I've already referred to a few of them. And again, we're not dealing with a comprehensive list here, but he says that church leaders are responsible to do three things, to work diligently in the church, to have charge over the church in the Lord, and then thirdly, to admonish the church. First of all, to work diligently in the church. Maybe you've heard the old joke about being a pastor. They say, you know, the pay isn't that great, but the hours are wonderful, 11 to 12 on Sunday. Well, would that it were so. Um, of course, if you're not a paid elder, then you don't even get the uh, pay factor. Uh, but... I think what Paul is maybe countering is uh, those, we'll see in Second uh, Thessalonians, there were those in the church who were loafing. They weren't working. They were sponging off the body. Paul has already called attention to how he labored there with his own hands 
so as not to be a burden to any of them. Uh, Maybe by this point there were a few elders in the church who were being supported. And there's always the tendency, if you're being supported, to figure, ah, well, you know, I'll get up when I feel good and I'll go into the office when I uh, feel like it. And and you loaf and you don't work hard. And, um, you know, if you're bivocational, and some of these men may have been, When push comes to shove, church takes second place, your job is first, that kind of thing. In 1 Timothy 5.17, Paul gives some direction there. He says, the elders who rule well, and it's um, the same word that we have here about um, having charge over you, the elders who rule well are to be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who work hard, there's that concept, at preaching and teaching. What does he mean? Well, double honor has reference both to honor and remuneration. Uh, Almost every commentator says that. And the double honor is to go to those who work hard, especially at preaching and teaching, because that's a hard task, and it takes uh, a long time to do. I rarely... And I mean rarely, I can't remember the last time, have sit down, look at my Bible, and go, wow, there it is. There's the message. There's the outline. You know, there's the main idea. I've got it. Uh, I sweat blood over every message. I spend hours and hours and hours doing it, sometimes 20 hours or more on a message trying to figure out what is this text saying? What does it mean? How does it apply to me? And to the congregation. So it's hard, hard work. In California, I had an older pastor friend. And he was always after me to get together. And I loved the guy. He was a dear brother. And I loved getting together with him. But I just didn't have the time. And so I was often saying, no, I can't. I can't. I I can't do it. And finally, he was getting kind of frustrated with me. I said to him, "Um, brother, let me ask. How many hours a week... Do you spend in ministry? He said, about 30. (laughs) And I was stunned. And I thought, 30? Good night. I am trying to limit it to 50. And often, I can't even get it done in 50. And it's no wonder he had all this time on his hands and just thought, wouldn't it be great to fellowship together? Yeah, but I just didn't have that kind of time in my week. And so, elders are to work hard in the work, especially those who teach and preach. Secondly, Paul says church leaders are responsible to have charge over the church in the Lord. The uh, secular writers Herodotus and Plato use the word that's translated have charge over you to refer to leadership in an army, in a state, or in a party And Paul uses it in 1 Timothy 3. He says that both elders and deacons should be good managers of their own homes. That's the same word. They are to have oversight and be managers of their families. Uh, As I mentioned, it's the word that Paul uses when he says elders who rule well should be considered worthy of double honor. They have a leadership position in the church. Um, And so the leaders in the church have responsibility for 
managing, overseeing all aspects of a local church, which would include preaching and teaching the word, guarding the flock from false doctrine, um, guiding the flock in the ways of the Lord, uh, helping resolve conflicts uh, that happen between members, overseeing church finances, uh, providing overall direction for the church, everything uh, that is included. Uh, It's important that elders are not to carry out this function of having charge over the church by lording it over the church, but rather by their example and when necessary by gentle exhortation there to guide the church in the ways of the Lord. They're to be servant leaders. Now on their part, the church, Paul says, is required to follow the elders' leadership and to submit to them, uh, unless they're, of course, in serious doctrinal error or sin. There's a very scary verse Maybe scary for you as a church member, but it's more so for me as an elder. In Hebrews 7, uh, 13, 17, it says this. Obey your leaders and submit to them. That's the hard part for you. Here's the hard part for me and the other elders. For they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account, gulp, to the Lord. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. I think sometimes churches carry over the idea of American democracy too far into local church government. There's certainly a legitimate sense in which the entire congregation in the New Testament is given responsibility for many, many things. Uh, We'll talk more about that next time. Um, But at the same time, it's clear the elders are given the responsibility of having charge over the local church. They are the ones who will answer to the Lord. I believe that little phrase, have charge over you in the Lord, is the safeguard there. Every elder should realize the Lord has given me a management duty. And every manager knows I'm not the owner. I'm only the manager. I have to answer to the owner for how things go. And so any God-given authority, whether in the church, in the home, or even in the state, is not primarily a perk. We think of it that way. Oh, wow, he's in leadership. He's got all the perks. No, he's got all the responsibility. And leadership is a sober responsibility before God. I'm going to give an account someday for this. And so we need to keep that in mind. Those under authority need to submit, and that's an un-American concept. We don't submit to our leaders. We vote the turkeys out of office, right? That's our mindset. But the Bible says submit to leadership, God-given authority. That means, too, in the local church, we have an annual meeting here, and yes, sometimes we refer to electing new elders, but I don't like that term because it smacks too much of American democracy. You know, I'm for this person, I'm for that person. No, that isn't the right way. We should prayerfully recognize God 
has given that person the qualities, the character qualities in the Bible that would qualify him to be an elder in the local church. Another fallacy is some churches put men into leadership so they'll start doing the work. That's backwards. We should see men who are doing the work and recognize it and give them the title. They should be already involved in shepherding the flock and teaching and um, doing everything that elders do. And we go, you know, that guy's an elder. And we come together in prayer. We recognize so-and-so. Yes, they are an elder in this local church. So, first of all, elders need to be hard workers. Secondly, he says they have charge over the church and the Lord. And then finally, church leaders are responsible to admonish the church the new american standard puts it give you instruction and yes that is partly right but in the margin it mentions admonish you and the uh, esv the niv the new king james version all translate it that way in fact it's the same word we'll see next time in verse 14 where paul exhorts the church to admonish the unruly And um, it's interesting, Paul is the only one in the New Testament to use this word. He used it in Acts 20 and verse 31 when he called together the Ephesian elders and he reminded them, he says, Therefore, be on the alert, remembering that night and day for a period of three years, I did not cease to admonish each one with tears. And so, yes, it involves instruction, but with the nuance of giving correction. Someone needs to change course or grow in an area. And so, to admonish whether you do it individually, each one, whether you do it as a group, through teaching, it involves this idea of uh, correction so that we'll grow in the Lord. And the point here, and, and we'll see this Uh, Next time, it is especially the task of the elders, but it's also the task of every church member. We are to grow in that, and I'm going to talk next time about what that means. But for now, let me just say this. It is never pleasant to admonish someone. Uh, It's just a hard task, and we tend to avoid it. Because usually when you go to someone and suggest, you know, brother, you need to change, they're going to resist it. We all do that naturally. And uh, we don't like that. And you can just prepare yourself. They might counterattack you. Who do you think you are? Tell me I need to change. Look at your life. That kind of thing. But the heart of biblical love is you want the other person to be all that Christ wants them to be. And it's, it's not loving if you see someone heading for a spiritual cliff. It would be like a shepherd that sees a sheep straying from the flock. It's going toward a dangerous ravine. And the shepherd goes, boy, that's dumb. You know, that sheep's going to go over the edge. I sure wouldn't do that if I was that guy. That's not love. Love tries to get that person back in the flock. Say, hey, you're in danger over there. And uh, trying to help them out. Now, the main job of a faithful pastor is to preach the word. 
I really believe that is a pastor's main task, to preach the word. And Paul gives that to Timothy in the final chapter of the final letter Paul wrote before he was executed, preach the word. And he says that involves reproving, rebuking, and exhorting. Those all sound like admonishing. And then he adds this, 2 Timothy three or 4, 3 and 4. He says, for the time will come when they will not endure sound doctrine. Have you ever puzzled about how odd that phrase sounds? Sound doctrine has to be endured. <laughs> I mean, I, I picture it like broccoli, you know? I would never eat another piece of broccoli if it weren't good for me, you know? Oh, yum, yum, broccoli for dessert. Yeah. No, I eat broccoli because it's good for me. It nourishes my body. It has good nutrients in it. And in heaven, broccoli will taste like ice cream, I'm convinced, and it'll all be good for us so we can enjoy it. But Paul says here, for the time will come when they, the church, will not endure sound doctrine. What are they going to do? Wanting to have their ears tickled, they will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance with their own desires and will turn away their ears from the truth and will turn aside to myths. Now that means one thing. When you choose a church, don't choose a church where the pastor consistently gives feel-good messages. Some of the Bible is feel-good, yes, thankfully. Some of the Bible is broccoli. You know, you got, you got to eat it. It's maybe difficult, but it's going to step on your toes. And if the Bible never steps on your toes, and a pastor never steps on your toes preaching the Bible, he's not doing his job because the Bible steps on my toes. So you've got to change there. And, and so that's how God helps us to grow. And we're always blessed when our lives come into conformity with God's word. And so a faithful pastor has to teach the hard stuff along with the good stuff. There's ice cream there, yeah, but there's a lot of broccoli there too. And we got to see it all. So that's the job of a church leader. So just let me review very quickly. Healthy relationships and healthy churches don't just happen. Uh, they require responsibility. Your responsibility toward church leaders, Paul says, is esteem, uh, respect them, first of all, esteem them very highly in love because of their work, and live in peace with other church members. The leaders are responsible to work diligently in the ministry, uh, shepherding the flock, to have charge over the flock in the Lord, and to admonish the church as needed. Someone has observed, God is going to salvage two things off this planet. One is his word that endures forever, and the other is his people, the church. And he will take us to be with him. And so, all of that to say, what we do in the local church is very, very important in light of eternity. And after explaining how the Lord is going to come back at the end of uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says, Therefore, my beloved brethren... Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your toil is not in vain in the Lord. Uh, let's bow together. As we bow before the Lord, let me just say that this message assumes 
you know Jesus Christ in a personal way. And perchance, if there's anyone here who does not know Christ, uh, you cannot work in a local church unless you're a member of the living body of Christ. And that happens when God imparts new life to us through the Holy Spirit. Jesus talked to a very religious man, Nicodemus. This guy would put us all to shame for his labors in religion. But Jesus told him, you need to be born again. You need to be born again. And that means we have to come to God and repent of our sin and put our trust in Jesus as the one who bore our sin on the cross. And if you've never done that, that is your primary need in life. And we would be overjoyed to sit down with you and explain that more fully. Dear Father, our heart's desire is that this church would bring honor and glory to the name of Jesus in this city. And to that end, Lord, help us as leaders to be faithful, to be conscientious, diligent, doing the work that you've called us to do. I pray for every member of the flock that they would be committed to serving as gifted members in whatever way you've given them to serve. And that Jesus would truly be the head of this body here. I ask if any are here, Lord, without you, that you would burden their heart with their desperately lost condition, that they would run to the cross to receive your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.